Hebrews 3 verse 6. Today is actually week number 16 when we are discussing or going through the book of Hebrews and we are studying the supremacy of Christ throughout the book of Hebrews. We have studied already, we have seen already that the author of Hebrews is writing his letter to those who were Jews at some point and now they became Christian and now they're considering going back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote this book to tell them not to do it. And almost the first 10 chapters, he was arguing the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus and the New Testament and Christianity is far more superior than Judaism that they're considering. And therefore, if Christianity is superior, then don't go back to what is inferior. We have seen that in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, the author of Hebrews argued that Jesus is superior to the prophets of the Old Testament. And then uh, chapter 1, verse 4, all the way till the end of chapter 2, he argued that Jesus is superior to the angels. And we started last week in chapter 3, where the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior to Moses. Now, um, we have seen chapter 3, verse 1 to 5 or 6, the argument that the author of Hebrews is presenting that Jesus is superior than Moses. He said that even though both were faithful in their ministries and in their position, Jesus was superior in as much as he's the creator of the house and Moses is a servant in the house. Also, Jesus is far more superior than Moses because Jesus is the divine son of God. But Moses, although he was faithful and the honorable servant of God, nevertheless, he was still one of the servants in the house of God. And we close with verse 6. That's where we left it last week when the author of Hebrews said this. I'm going to read verse 6 all the way to verse 13. But Christ as a son over his own house. Jesus is superior because he's the son versus Moses who was a servant. And then he said, whose house we are if we hold fast to the confidence and, re uh, and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the days of, uh, of the rebellion, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? Such powerful and strong words from the author of Hebrews. We stopped really at the first part of verse 6. We pick up today from the second part. It says this, whose house we are, and look at this now, if we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The author of Hebrews says something to that effect as well later on in verse 14, which is the following verse that is not here. It says this, that we are partakers of Christ, again, if we hold fast to the confidence and the hope that is ahead of us. The question here is, when the author of Hebrews say, if we hold fast, 
Is he making our salvation conditional in a way? He's saying we are his house. We are his partaker, the partaker of Christ. But that's only if you hold fast to the end, right? Is that what he's saying? Well, there's two major ways to understand this phrase. Number one, to understand it as conditional, that you know, you can lose your salvation at some point, you know, because that's the condition. You can, you can be saved. You can be a part of the house of Christ. You can be a partaker of Christ. But then if you mess this up throughout and you don't hold fast all the way to the end, then you're going to lose your salvation and you're going to lose your status as part of the house of Christ and as part of, or as a partaker of Christ. That's one way of looking at it. Amen. The other way of looking at it is that it is not conditional. It is more like ground evidence basis. An example for that will be like this. When we say in English, she is married if she has a ring on her finger. Let me say that again. She is married if she has a ring on her finger. Now, what is after the if, having a ring on the finger, is not a condition for her to be married. It is the evidence that she's married. You guys are with me? I might have had it backward in the notes here. But let me say that sentence again. She's married if she has a ring on her finger. Having a ring on the finger is not the condition for the marriage to continue. It's the evidence that she is married. You guys are with me. And we can understand the author of Hebrews' argument in the same way. We are the house of Christ. We are partakers of Christ. And the evidence of that is we are holding fast to the end. Amen? So it's more not that more is more than it's a conditional thing to be a house of Christ. It's more of an evidence that you, if you are truly saved, the perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. That if you are truly saved, you will continue with Christ to the end. And if you lose your, you lose that holding fast throughout the process, throughout your walk with Christ, then you weren't really saved in the first place. You guys are with me, and that's pretty much the essence of the argument between Arminism who argue that you can lose your salvation versus Calvinism that says you can never lose your salvation. Amen? Amen. Which one is the right way? I'm not going to, I don't know yet because I need to study it. It's, it's, it's massive, huge resources. We're going to look into all of this after we finish the book of Hebrews. I want to go through the whole book first and then we'll go back and look um, and look which one is the right way, which one is the way to understand the scripture. But the end of the day, I told you guys before, there is... Both Calvinist and Arminist agree on this. If you come to the point that you abandon Christ to the point of no return and you say, I don't want nothing to do with Christ. Like in our example here, if these Christians will abandon Christ, denounce him and go back to Judaism and say Christ is not the son of God. He's a liar. He was not even from God because Judaism is true. If anybody get to that point that they deny Christ to that point, nobody disagree that these people are not saved and they're not going to make it to have eternal life. The debate is, are they saved in the first place or they're not saved in the first place? Amen? And in the bigger picture, I'm not really super concerned about that, right? If you continue to the end, if you walk with Christ all the way through till you die, we know that your experience of salvation is true. If you abandon Christ to the point of no return throughout your walk, definitely you're not going to make it to heaven because you totally rejected Christ. The question is, were you saved in the first place or not? It's important to know, but it is not the end of the day. You guys, it's not the, the deal breaker here. The, the fact is, if you're Christian, if you're saved, you'll make it all the way to the end. Amen? Now, 
We'll leave all of that just some food for, uh, food for thought. We'll talk about that after we finish the book of Hebrews. But now let's move on to his argument here. We've seen in, in verse 1 to verse 6 that the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior to Moses, right? All the way from chapter 3 verse 6 to the end of chapter 4, now he's talking this. If Jesus is superior, if Christ is superior to Moses, let's take a look at the followers of Christ versus the followers of Moses. Amen? So he's now trying to take the argument of superiority and trying to apply that to the followers of Christ versus the followers of Moses. And he starts verse 7, all the way from verse 7 till the end of verse 11 by quoting Psalm 95. Amen? He has a quote directed from Psalm 95, verse 7 to 11 as well. And from chapter 3, all the way to the end of chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews discusses three main points. You guys are with me? Three main points. Number one, he talks about the quotation from Psalm 95. Then he talks about the application of Psalm 95, which he discusses from verse 12 to verse 15. We're going to start in that today. And then he talks about the exhortation that he gets from Psalm 95. And that's from chapter 3, verse 16, all the way till the end of chapter 14. Amen? So three main points here that we're going to be talking about for a few weeks uh, starting this week. Number one, the quotation. Number two, the application. And number three, the exhortations. Amen? So let's start with number one, the quotation. He starts the very first word in verse 7 by saying what? Therefore. So again, he's concluding now what is happening after that is a conclusion of what he just mentioned. We are a follower of Christ and we need to hold fast to the end so that or so then to support his argument that we must hold back, hold all the way to the end. He, he quotes Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is pretty much, he quoted verbatim what Psalm 95 verse 7 to 11 says. However, he made one major change that we're going to talk about later on. But the idea here is he almost quoted the whole thing word for word. In the verses, in these verses that we just read in, in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, comparable to Psalm 95, 7 to 11, it seems like David, when he wrote... Um, when he wrote Psalm 95, David had three different events that the children of Israel has went through. And David is meditating on these events. You guys are with me? If you look with me to these verses, he says this. Let's read it. I read it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. David probably here is thinking of the events that took place in Exodus chapter 17. That's a place called Massa and Meribah, which literally means trial and temptation or contention. The children of Israel has just left the land of Egypt. They had just crossed the Red Sea. In, in Exodus 15, we see that Miriam and the whole uh, nation of Israel is singing praises to God because they crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh and all his army have been destroyed. Now they just start taking their first steps in the wilderness. And in Exodus 17, we see that there is no water and the whole nation start complaining against God. 
And God commands Moses to go and struck a rock, and which he did. And out of that solid rock, water came out for the children of Israel. And they called that place Massa and Meribah, which literally means trial and contention, because the children of Israel rebelled, tried God in that very day, right out the time they stepped out of the, the, the land of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. Amen? So the author of Hebrew, the David, which was quoted later by the author of Hebrews, probably thinking about that event here in Exodus 17. And then if you continue in verse 9, it says, Where your father tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. David probably, which again was quoted by the author of Hebrews here, was thinking of another event that took place throughout the, the history of the children of Israel. And that's in Numbers 20. Now, that's almost to the very end of that wilderness time for the children of Israel. Again, no water, and the children of Israel are complaining again. We rehear the word Meribah again, trial or rebellion again. And God commands Moses this time, he says, I don't want you to to strike the rock anymore, I want you to speak to the rock. Moses rebuilt against God in that event. He struck the rock again. Even though water came out, God was angry with Moses and he forbade him from the entering the promised land. And there was 40 years between these two events, the events of uh, Exodus 17 and the events of number 20. And through it all, God says, you have been trying me over and over and rebelling against me over and over for the period of 40 years. And then the author of Hebrews, quoting again David, is probably thinking about a third event that took place in verse 10 here when it says, Therefore I was angry with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this is a reference to the event that took place in Numbers chapter 14. What happens in Numbers chapter 14? The children of Israel got to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Now they're about to enter the promised land. And they send out 12 spies. 10 out of the 12 spies come back with a bad report. The land is too hard. God is not going to do it. We can't trust God. Let's just back up and go to Egypt. Only two spies, Joshua and Caleb, trusted God and they told the people, let's trust the Lord. He has promised and even though they're mighty men in the promised land, we still can take it on. And the children of Israel rebelled against God that very day and they decided to not trust God and to listen to the ten spies. And they wanted to back up and go to Egypt. And when Moses resisted, they said, we'll find a different leader who will lead us back to, the, to, the, to, the, to Egypt. And God was so angry with the children of Israel, he wanted to destroy them all that day. But Moses fasted and prayed for 40 days before God so he will not destroy the nation. But God told Moses this, because these people always go astray in my heart. That's a direct quote from, Psalm, uh, from Numbers 14. Because these people always go astray in my heart and have not known my walls, they will not enter into the promised land. And I'm going to have them go 40 years in the wilderness because they have not obeyed me till all that generation dies and their children will enter into the promised the promise land and they shall not enter my rest. That's the words that God had told Moses in Numbers 14. The rest here is reference to what you think. They will not enter my 
rest, the promised land, right? God said they're not going to enter the promised land. They're not going to enter my rest. So the last part of verse 10 and verse 11 is probably a reference to Numbers 14. Do you see now that the author of Hebrews is probably quoting David and David was thinking about Throughout the journey of Israel, how they have been rebellious against God, but he's highlighting particularly these three events. You guys are with me so far? Now, even though, even though David was thinking about these particular three events throughout, it seems like David in Psalm 95 was particularly consumed with the events that took place in Numbers chapter 14 when the children of Israel rebelled against God and did not want to enter into the promised land and wanted to go back to the land of Egypt. You guys are with me? The similarities between Psalm 95 and the account of of the rebellion of the children of Israel in, in Numbers 14 is so striking. Let me just show you a couple of things. Psalm 95 verse 7, it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, and that's pretty much a resemblance of what God said in Numbers 14, 22. Here's what God said. Because all these men which have seen my glory and have not heard my voice. So God said, you don't hear my voice in Numbers 14. David is highlighting that in Psalm 95. It says, in the day of testing in that desert even though that can be a reference to Exodus 17 when they tested God in Massa and Meribah there's still strong references here to Numbers 14 verse 11 and verse 21 to 22 when the Israelites defied God in a particular aggressive way and they tested God that he's not able to lead them into the promised land and wanted to go back to Egypt the complaint when God said their hearts always go astray. That's verse 10, the last part, second part. Their hearts always go astray from me. That resembles to a high extent Numbers 14, 22. When God said this, they have already tested me 10 times. The idea here is that they always test God. They always tempt God. Their hearts always go astray from God. And the idea here again is this. God was not mad with them because they sinned one time. You guys are with me? God was mad with them because rebellion was the attitude. This is their pattern. This is what they do all the time. They are just hard-hearted, stiff-necked people who kept on rejecting and disobeying and not believing God. Amen? Their hearts always go astray from me. Finally, when, when Psalm 95 said, And I sworn in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Again, that's almost resembling Numbers 14.30. They will certainly not enter the land. That's what God told Moses in Numbers 14. So as you guys can tell, right? Psalm 95, even though it referenced many events in the life of the, the journey of the children of Israel, number 14, Numbers 14 is the foundation of Psalm 95. Amen? And that is precisely what the author of Hebrews in so many ways was referring to. He's quoting 95, Psalm 95, but he has number 14 in mind. You guys are with me so far? You know the background of what the author of Hebrews is trying to refer to here. The author of Hebrews pretty much took Psalm 95 verbatim. He didn't change anything except one thing he changed. I'm going to read these two verses for you, and let's see if you can pick up on the difference between Psalm 95 and the quote in Hebrews 3. Here's Psalm 95, 9 to 10. Here's what David said. Where your ancestors tested me, 
They tried me. For, fair, for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said they are people whose hearts go astray. Now, here's the quote in, in Hebrews 3, 9 to 10. Where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation. Can you pick up on the difference? It's a little bit tricky. What's that? Oh, it's minor. No, there is, uh, it, there is a lot of minor differences, but there's one that's a little bit big difference. Let's read the second part again. Here it says, God says, For 40 years I was angry with that generation. You guys are with me? But look how the author of Hebrews quoted it. He said this, They saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation. Do you guys see the difference now? In, in, in the psalm, David was saying that the 40 years is the time where God executed his judgment over the children of Israel. Amen? The 40 years is the time that God was angry with the children of Israel. Right? The author of Hebrews switched that in a way. He's saying that the 40 years is not the time of judgment. It's actually a time of grace from God. And when they keep on messing up for 40 years, therefore, because of that... I was angry with them. You guys are with me? Do you see the difference? The idea here is this. The author of Hebrews is precisely doing that change. Either, either he has a different manuscript or he's doing it on purpose to convey a message to his readers that God might be patient over and over and over again, but the rebellious attitude against God will ultimately re- result in God provoking his judgment and his wrath over those who reject him. You guys are with me? So he's trying to convey that message to the readers. That's why he did that change. Whether he's using a different manuscript or... He's doing it in purpose. I don't know, but the idea is still valid. He's sending a message to his readers. You guys are with me? Yes. Now, I want to read just a couple of small things here. If you, um, the idea here that the author of Hebrews is using Kaddish Barnea, the, the place where the children of Israel rejected God and wanted to go back to Egypt. Uh, William Lane, the guy who wrote that commentary on the book of Hebrews, so amazing. He wrote this, and it's so good. I'm going to read it verbatim. It's in um, the same page that we're still on, just a little bit high. It says this, Kaddish Barnea was a symbol of Israel's disobedience. It's a place where God's past redemption was forgotten and where his divine promise no longer compelled the children of Israel to obedience. You guys are with me? Think about this. In the mindset of the author of Hebrews is this. Kaddish Barnea, that place where Israel ultimately rejected God. Israel in that day, in that place, forgotten all the blessings that God has done for them throughout, right? They've forgotten how he struck Egypt in times. They've forgotten how he, broke, uh, he opened the Red Sea for them. They've forgotten how he has provided for them throughout the wilderness. They've forgotten all his past blessings, right? And not only that, but they make an intentional decision to disobey and not trust the promises of God that in the future they actually will inherit the promised land. Amen? You guys are with me? This place is a massive symbol of disbelief, of rebellion against God. They say, God, we can't even remember what you have done in the past, any good thing you have done for us. And guess what, God? We're making a conscious decision today not to believe your promise. You guys are with me? 
Because that's extremely essential in the way the author of Hebrews is talking to his readers. Remember, these are people who were thinking about abandoning Christ, abandoning Christianity, and go back to Judaism. Amen? So in a way, the author of Hebrews thinking that they're going to make the exact same decision that the children of Israel had made when they were in Kadesh Barnea. When they said, God, we intentionally adamantly refuse to, to believe your promise anymore. And we're going to go against it and we're going to go back to the land of Egypt. Amen? It's the ultimate rebellion against God. And he's saying here, warning here his readers that they might be in the exact same position that they also by abandoning Christ, leave Christianity, go back to Judaism. They're also declaring the ultimate disobedience to God and unbelief in any of his promises that he has promised through Christ. Amen? This is the point of no return that the author of Hebrews is warning from right and that's the point of the whole epistle i want you to know that whether you're a calvinist or arminist or believe that you can lose your salvation or you don't lose your salvation what we're talking about here is not that you commit one sin and god is so mad at you he'll come at you and say you're not my son anymore get out of here this is not our god right we're talking about apostasy we're talking about the ultimate rejection of god we're talking about knowing and intentionally refusing to believe his promise you guys are with me? That is the problem of Kadesh Barnea. That's the problem that the author of Hebrews wanted to warn his readers from. Don't reject God to the point that you cannot come back. You guys are with me? Just like the children of Israel. And it's very interesting how he starts by saying, Therefore the Holy Spirit says. Right? Present tense. Remember, David wrote this song years and years ago, right? But the author of Hebrews doesn't say the Holy Spirit said that in the past through David. He said the Holy Spirit says what he said through David in the past. He's still saying today to you. The, uh, the warning that David gave his readers not to be like their fathers when they rejected God in the Kadesh Barnea is the same warning that God is delivering to you and me today not to reject God to that point. You guys are with me, right? So that is that quotation. Now we're going to take part of the application today and we're going to finish the application next week and start on the exhortation. You guys are with me? Yep. Good so far? Now let's read verses. Uh, I can read that for you. Verses um, 12 and 13 because that's the, the first part of the application that he's given them. Verse 12 and verse 13. Therefore, brethren, be aware, be aware, brethren, Lest there be in any of you an evil heart, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, which while it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews here is warning his readers and he's highlighting Four different parts of this application. Four different things about the warning that he's sending his readers. Number one, it's a warning to everyone. You guys are with me? Number two, it's a warning against unbelief. Amen? Number three, it's a warning. It's an urgent warning. It's something you need to heed today right away. And number four, it's a warning from the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? Fourfold parts of the warning, the application of how the reader should apply 
Psalm 95, which reference number 14 to their lives. Number one, it's a warning to everyone. Number two, it's a warning from unbelief. Number three, it's an urgent warning. And number four, it's a warning from that deceitfulness of sin. Amen? It's a warning to everyone. That's what he said in verse 12. Be aware, brethren, why? Lest there be in any of you an evil heart. You guys are with me? Regardless of who you are among that community in the, in the Hebrews of that time, it doesn't matter if you're a leader, it doesn't matter if you're a layman, any of you is object can experience the same level of rejection that the children of Israel expressed in Kaddish Barnea number 14. You guys are with me, right? And he, the author of Hebrews, kept on warning every single individual among his readers, not just as a group, but individually, multiple times throughout the book. Hebrews 3.13, this is what he also said, um, we just read that verse. So that none of you, not a single person of you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? Individually, you individually can be subject to that. You individually can be deceived. And verse uh, Hebrews 4, 1. Let us be careful that, what? None of you individually be found uh, to have fallen short of it, of obtaining the rest. Hebrews 4, 11. So that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. You guys are with me? Hebrews 12, 15. See that there is no one come short of the grace of God. The author of Hebrews is sending his warning not just to the Hebrews as a group, which he does multiple times, but to every single individual in that group so they cannot be tricked by the deceitfulness of sin and keep on compromising individually so they can get to the point that they ultimately reject God. You guys are with me? It doesn't matter if I'm your pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher. It doesn't matter if you're a deacon. It doesn't matter if you're just a, a layman. It doesn't matter who you are in your Christian walk. This warning is for you. Everyone. Amen. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. This warning is still for you. Amen. Amen. I was watching a TV one time with one of these decent guys on TV, which not that many of them, but then he said this phrase that stuck with me. I heard this years and years ago, but it's so powerful, so good. And he said this, um, Samson was the strongest man in the Bible and sin brought him down, right? Mm -hmm. David was the man after God's heart. He was the most spiritual man in the Bible and sin brought him down, right? Solomon was the wisest man in the Bible and sin brought him down, right? And then that preacher said, I don't care how strong you are, how spiritual you are, how wise you are. Sin can still bring you down. You guys are with me? This is extremely important. No compromise. Don't compromise with sin. When you compromise with sin, sin can trick you that you can get to the ultimate place of ultimately rejecting God. Amen? And because everyone is subject to that, everyone could potentially have that evil heart. The following verse, the author of Hebrews say this, that we should encourage one another every day. Amen? Because we all subject to fall into that evil heart. It should be the responsibility of each one of us to exhort each one of us every single day. We warn, we encourage, we hold together as a group. Because every and each, each and every one of us can have the possibility of sinning and have that evil heart against God. You guys are with me? Yes. Amen? Amen? Now, 
Say what you say about the church. There is a lot of lame churches. There is a lot of bad churches. There are a lot of churches that is not good. Amen? But the Bible holds the body of Christ in high esteem, right? As incompetent as we can be, as evil sometimes as we can be, you still the Bible, especially in the book of Hebrews, it gives us stern warning that we should stick together. Amen? We should warn and encourage and exhort and lift up each other as a group because every one of us, regardless of how spiritual you are, you can sin against God. You can, that, you can have that evil heart of unbelief against God. Amen? Amen? Amen. So quit whining about the church and let's just do it together. Amen? The second part is, he said that it's not just a warning to everyone, it's a warning from unbelief. He said this, be aware, brethren, at least any of you will have an evil and believing heart or evil heart of unbelief in departing or leaving the living God. Again, in his warning, you'll see here that the author of Hebrews was still very consumed with the events that took place in Numbers 14. When the children of Israel came to the point of the ultimate rejection of God and the ultimate refusal to believe his promises. Amen? Look at this. He said, be aware so you don't have an evil heart. Evil that reflects what God already said in Numbers 14, 27 to 35. He called the people, these are evil Generation. Amen? Twice in Numbers 14 when they ultimately rejected God. Now, that evil generation is an expression that we don't read anywhere in the Pentateuch, in the first, first five books in the Bible, except twice here in Numbers 14. Amen? That tells you something. The author of Hebrews was definitely thinking about the events of Kadesh Barnea when he warned of an evil heart. You guys are with me? But number two, it's an evil heart in unbelief or unbelieving, unbelieving evil heart. Again, he warned about the unbelief once later in, in, in chapter 3 verse 19 when he said this. So we see that they could not enter into the promised land. Why? Because of the unbelief. You guys are with me? He's again referencing Numbers 14 and say the reason why the children of Israel did not enter into God's rest, into his promised land, is because of their ultimate unbelief. And that in a way mirror what God said in Numbers 14, 11. He said this, how long will these people refuse to believe me? And the author of Hebrews is still mindful of these events that took place in Numbers 14. And he's warning his readers that they do not do what the children of Israel did when they ultimately rejected God in Numbers 14 before they enter into the promised land. Amen? Look, I'm just going to read this. It's so good. The allusion to number 14 are significant because they indicate the unbelief is not just a lack of faith or trust in one event or in one incident. It is the refusal to believe God, which leads inevitability to turning away from God in a deliberate act of rejection. You guys are with me? This is what the author of Hebrews is warning from. I don't want you to be scared thinking that God is mad at you and once you, get, once you sin one time he's going to kick you out of his family because he said if you don't hold fast you're out of it, right? This is not what the book of Hebrews is about. If that's the case I promise you I will be the first person who will not enter into heaven, right? Because it's not about us being perfect to enter into heaven. It's about Christ and the perfection of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. What the author of Hebrews is warning from is not 
not falling in sin here and there. He's warning about the ultimate rejection of God that you abandon Christ altogether and say, I have nothing to do with him. I am totally done with who Jesus is. Amen? And the events again of Numbers 14 is really what is weighing on his mind here. And then he says, evil heart and unbelief in turning away from the living God. Again, that mirrors Numbers 14, 9. Do not turn away from the Lord. That's the warning from Joshua and Caleb after they came back, after spying the promised land. They turned the people, warned the people, do not turn away from the Lord. And that's what the author of Hebrews was thinking about here. You guys are with me? So the warning that the author of Hebrews is giving his readers is relying heavily on the events that took place in Numbers 14. The reliance, I'm going to read this as well, the reliance on number 14 in his application shows that the author of Hebrews was concerned that his reader express the same level of rejection to God as the children of Israel did in Numbers 14. It's the ultimate rejection of God. You guys are with me? So number one, it's a warning to everyone. Number two, it's a warning from unbelief. Number three, it's an urgent warning. Psalm 95 verse 7, start by saying what? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Amen? The author of Hebrews apparently liked the word today so much, he used it eight times between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And every time he's taking us back to that events of, of, of Psalm 95, he's saying, today, today, remember it's today. So as long as it is today, let's all stick together with Christ and never think about compromising or going back. Amen? The fact that it is today we need to hear the voice of God. Not tomorrow, not next year, not next week, not, not whatever. It is today. Show us that this is an urgent warning that each and every one of us should heed the voice of God right now. You guys are with me? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then he says this in verse 14, or verse 13. But exhort one another daily what, while it is called today. So he's playing with words here in a way. He's saying while it's called today as if the September, what, what is today? July, what is it? June, June 24th. So he's saying, I'm still, uh, I'm not in it. He's saying while it is called today, June 20, 24th, let's all exhort one another. Amen. But he's saying also, while it is called today, and that's the day or the time that extends all the way to the second coming of Christ. As a, as a Christian, as a group of people, you guys are with me? We should do that on a daily basis, as long as it is still the day of the grace of God that will end when Jesus comes with the rapture. You guys are with me? It's an urgent warning. So number one, it's a warning to everyone. Number two, it is a... What? Warning from unbelief. Number three, it's an urgent warning. Number four, it's a warning from the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Let's think about the children of Israel in number 14. They stand denying or willingly choose to forget every blessing God has showed them in the past. Every miraculous power that they have experienced from God in the past, right? And not only that, they make a conscious decision not to believe the promises of God and say God is unable and unfaithful to fulfill his promises. And we cannot go into the promised land because they look strong, right? That's, that's what they did that day, right? 
But remember this, the children of Israel did not start like that. Remember, actually, the Bible tells us in Exodus 4, 30 and 31, that when Aaron and Moses heard the voice of God, and they went to the children of Israel to tell them that God will deliver them, here is what the Bible said. The Bible said that the people, the children of Israel, believed, and they bowed down and worshipped. You guys are with me? They believed God when he said in, in Exodus 4, when God said, I will get you out of the land of Egypt and I will put you into the promised land. The Bible said they believed, they bowed down, they worshiped God. Amen. Indeed, the author of Hebrews himself spoke of their faith. He said this in Hebrews 11, later on, we're going to read this verse. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. Who's they? The Israelites. The same people who rejected God in Numbers 14. You guys are with me? Therefore, they passed through the Red Sea as, as though they were passing through dry water. And the Egyptian, when they attempt to do it, they drowned. So even the author of Hebrews commended their faith as well and said they trusted God at some point. You guys are with me, right? Now, in Exodus 15, after the children of Israel passed and they crossed the Red Sea, the Bible said that Miriam and all the ladies, they brought all these instruments and they start singing and they praising God and the whole nation of Israel start worshiping and dancing before God for His salvation. Amen? Mm -hmm. Now, I can imagine if you take a poll of the children of Israel that day, if you or me have a piece of paper and go around the whole camp, write the name and take their opinion and you ask them, how sure are you that you're going to enter into the promised land based on what you have seen? I can assure you in my estimation, probably 95% or more of the children of Israel will be so sure that God will get them into the promised land. You guys are with me? Because they just have seen God breaking the Red Sea to them. Amen? And they have just walked through a dry land, even though it is actually the Red Sea. Amen? And they're all rejoicing in the salvation of God. I would say it is a fair assumption to think that all of the nation of Israel that day were pretty sure that there is no question in their mind that they're going to enter into the promised land. You guys are with me? But the same people who rejoiced in God's salvation, the same people who rejoiced in God's salvation. In Numbers 14, we see them rejecting God, defying Him, not believing His promises, and willing to go back to the children of Israel and God getting mad with them that they do not enter into the rest. You guys are with me? Now, the difference between Exodus 15 and Numbers 14 is not an overnight thing, right? It is not like they were dancing in the morning and then at night they say, what? Well, this is it. We're going back. We're not going to do this anymore. You guys are with me? There was a gradual deception from sin throughout their journey that God might not care about them that much, that God might not be that faithful, that God might not bring their his promises to fulfillment. And this gradual deceptions of sin hardened their heart just one bit at a time. Incremental hardness of the heart that they eventually got to the points of number 14 that they ultimately rejected God, His promises, and His salvation. You guys are with me? That is the deception of sin that can lead into the hardness of the heart. You guys are with me? Don't Compromise with sin. You guys are with me? Listen, don't compromise with sin. Sin is not going to come to you and say, just forget about that Jesus. Let's just go back to your old life. Who cares about this guy? Sin is not going to do that to you. Sin is going to come to you and say, just compromise a little bit. You're still a Christian. You still love Jesus. Just do that one thing. 
And that one thing will lead to another thing. And that other thing will lead to a third and a fourth and a fifth thing. And before you know it, you're going to be in the same place like the children of Israel in Numbers 14. Rejecting God, defying Him. Amen? Amen? Amen. Take sin very seriously. Don't come close to it. Don't see how much you can get away with. See how much you can run from. Even the appearance of evil, try to avoid. You guys are with me? I grew up in, in Egypt. And we're very conservative, like as a, as a society, as a culture. I came to the States when I was 22. I have never heard in my life, till I was 22, till I came to America, that a Christian would get a divorce. It just never heard of that. I just never heard of it. I never heard of Christians committing adultery. I just never heard of it. It's just, I've never heard of it at all. Not that we're moral or anything like that. We're corrupt in many other ways, but the, the, the immorality, it's just not there, partially, again, because of the conservative culture I grew up in. And then I came to America, and a lot of, 50% of the church are divorced. Immorality is so rampant, even among the Christian. Pastors fall in sin, immoral sins. I'm not blaming anybody, but what I'm saying is this. The fact that there's a lot of immorality happening. Think about this. A pastor of a church who, who have seen a move of God in so many ways, and then ultimately commit adultery or cheat on his wife or whatever. That did not happen overnight, right? They all started by, I'm just going to go have lunch with my secretary. Oh, I'm just having trouble with my wife. Let me talk to my secretary. Oh, she's just a good friend that we're hanging out with all the time. And gradually, sin start deceiving the person to the point that they ultimately end up falling in sin and cheating on their spouses. You guys are with me? I was picking up Mike this morning and I was listening to Samuel, the first Samuel or second Samuel. I was thinking about reading about King David. And I was reading about how he, he saw Bathsheba and he liked her and he brought her and slept with her. And then he wanted to cover up. And then he's so tricky trying to get the husband, Uriah, to go back home so he can sleep with his wife, so he can say, this is not my son, or this is not my kid. And when Uriah did the right thing and didn't want to go home to sleep with his wife, David plotted his killing. Now, think about this. David is cunning evil, cunning evil, to get rid of, to get rid of the guy that is one of his captains, one of his heroes, who did nothing wrong. This is the same David that before he became king, he could kill Saul, the king, and end his misery. And he did not want to even to cut part of Saul's robe because he said, I dare not touch the Lord anointing. You guys are with me? Do you see how David compromised all the way to actually slip to the woman that is not his wife and was cunning ways to kill her husband so he can get away with it? What happened to that David? It is the gradual deception and manipulation of sin that changed him from the point of he could not touch the Lord anointing that's King Saul who was persecuting him and wanted to kill him all the way to David cunning ways to kill an innocent man so he can get away with his sin you guys are with me if David can do that then you and me can sure do that you guys are with me what's the point today do not Compromise with sin. Not the tiniest bit. Because if you come close to sin, sin is going to keep on luring you, deceiving you, manipulating you, till the point that you might even have a hardened heart in unbelief against the living God. You guys are with me. Amen. That is the warning that the author of Hebrews was giving us this morning. Amen? Amen. 
Let's close our eyes and pray.